0: On that uh, in regards to that, but this morning we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 20. Starting chapter 20, we have um, a bunch to get through here this morning. We're we're not going to make it all the way through the chapter, um, but uh, there's a lot in this these first verses that we're going to go through this morning. And if you've been with us as we've been um, studying through the Gospel of Luke, you know or you'll remember that. <clears throat> One of the things that, that Jesus has been telling his disciples, this has been this repeated message, that he's been teaching them a lot of things. We know that that on this journey to Jerusalem, where they're at now, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the events that were going to take place when they got there. And it was unlike any other time that they had been there because Jesus was telling them that when we get there this time, you need to expect some things are going to be different. You're going to expect that there's going to be some conflict. You're going to expect that there's going to be some suffering. As a matter of fact, Jesus told them that he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be arrested and crucified, and um, he's told them that repeatedly. And if we look back to John chapter nine verse twenty, or excuse me, Luke chapter nine verse twenty-two, it's one of the times when Jesus spoke this message to him. And he said this to him directly. He said, "Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by here's here's this is very specific, okay? Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised on the third day." And, and in this next chapter, we see the specificness of this verse coming to pass, okay? We read in this next chapter that as Jesus taught the people in the temple, that he was confronted by these very same groups of people that Jesus had warned his disciples about. Three groups of the religious leaders that Jesus said would reject him. And we read about this conflict that takes place really at the end here. And these men, they had come to Jesus because... He had entered the temple, we read about this last week, we studied this last week, he entered into the temple, and um, Josh, if you want to start that clock, please, behind you, he entered into the temple and he had publicly confronted these religious leaders um, by driving their workers and even them, if you will, those whom he had had employed and put into the the temple to do this business, but they had been, been put in there and allowed to be in there to do unjust business in the house of God. And and then Jesus, after driving them out, he, he verbally rebuked them and essentially called them thieves, okay? He said that they turned God's house into a den of thieves, and he was implying that they were the thieves, And and when he had said this, <clears throat> when he had said that they had uh, taken what had been the house of prayer and, and turn it into the den of thieves through this, through this verbal rebuke and this, this physical altercation that took place, they were not pleased with him, as you can imagine. Needless to say, the religious leaders, because um, their authority, really, their authority had been challenged, and because their sins had been exposed by these truths that Jesus had, had, had publicly spoken to them, um, and, and it says that they were told that they thought, they sought to destroy him because of these things all the more, okay? And that's the context for what we're reading as we go into this next chapter. They sought to destroy Jesus all the more. And in this next chapter, it, it records the, the really um, amplified attempts that they're taking now to, to bring to pass their will, their desire. And, and in this initial context, uh, retaliation, if you will, we see that their attempts to try to catch Jesus are, 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 first of all, to try to catch him in his words so they could find something to charge him with. They, they were looking for an accusation. We know that ultimately that they weren't able to find any accusation, so they began to make some up, right? Uh, but initially they tried to find some kind of accusation that they might, might um, have him arrested. But we need to understand that, that at this time, okay, At this time, their questioning of Jesus, even though we see their motive, and, and the reasoning behind it, we need to see that their questioning really served the purposes of God. And once again, we see God's in control of all of these events taking place. They're not, they didn't just happen to Jesus. They were foretold of, they were planned, and there was a reason for him. Even this, even this questioning that took place there in the temple. And, 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 and because what we see is that through the questioning, Jesus was literally being inspected to see if there was any fault in him. And when Jesus told his disciples that he would suffer and be rejected, back in chapter 9 of verse 22, that, that passage I read to you, he used a specific Greek word when he referred to the word, um, when he spoke about being um, uh, uh, rejected. And, and it's, it's the Greek word, apodokimazo, um, which means to reject after an investigation or to reject as not genuine. Okay? That's what he's saying. The religious leaders are going to reject me. They're going to inspect me. They're going to investigate me. And they're going to determine that I'm not genuine. That's what he's saying about him when he's speaking to the disciples. And this is what's taking place. And it's important for us to take note of when we consider that Jesus was to become the, 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 the Lamb of God. Correct? The Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for us specifically at the Passover feast during this time. And because the Jewish people, according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, were required to carefully inspect and examine all the Passover lambs before they were offered up for sacrifice, literally what they were called to do when you study that passage is is they were to take the lamb that had been chosen, and they were to bring them into their house. And the lamb would live with them, and this was not a normal thing. You think, well, they're agrarian, yeah, maybe lambs would come in and live with you every once in a while. No. No. That's not how it happened. Only, only this, at this time of year. And, and as you can imagine, a lamb is going to do what lambs do. It was messy. It was up close and personal. And, and I'm sure your kids would be like, why is the lamb living with us? And it was the opportunity to explain what God had commanded. And it was this time of inspection, of observation, to make sure that the sacrifice that was going to be offered was pure, was holy. But as you can also imagine... If you've had kids, and and, and uh, you bring a little lamb into your house for four days, uh, and you tell your kids afterwards that now we're going to kill that lamb and eat it, it's, it's going to be a difficult thing to do, right? There's a sense of intimacy and closeness that comes through that inspection period of time as well. And so we see all of these things now being actually fulfilled um, through the Messiah, who is now being examined to make sure that he is without sin. And he was presenting, Jesus was presenting himself for inspection. He had no, he had no obligation to these religious leaders to allow for them to question him. He's the son of God, right? But he did. He presented himself for inspection and, and he was examined and he was tested by these religious leaders during this final week of his life but in spite of what they saw, finding no fault in him, no defect or no blemish, they, because of their self-righteous pride, still rejected the one whom God had sent. So, with that, we pick back up now in chapter 20, verses 1-8. through 8. I want to pray first and also... Um, the last few weeks, since I've been back from Africa, I've kind of got out of the, um, the routine of praying for the other churches in our community, and I want to continue to do that as a congregation. So this morning, as we pray for our time together, let's also pray um, for the Efree Church and Pastor Jim there, uh, also Pastor Lauren Coleman, and um, a few others, Daniel, who is the, the youth leader, and then our brothers and sisters who are attending there this morning. So if you guys will join with me in bowing our heads in prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had. Lord, to come together and to um, worship you through song, Lord. And we continue to worship you, desire to to continue to worship you this morning as we study your word and as we open up our hearts and our minds to to receive what you have for us, Lord. Not only that we would um, know what your word says, but we would know you more, know your will for our lives. And God, the truths that are found here in this text, God, that we would be willing to apply them to our lives as we consider ourselves to be Christians, followers of you, your servants, Lord, and, and remembering that in addition to being our Savior, you're our Lord. And Lord, we want to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. And so as we see, Lord, how you were tested and tried and found to be blameless, and more evidence, God, of of just truly um, the, the validity of our faith and, and the offering and sacrifice that you made for us, God. May our hearts be filled with gratitude for you. And, Lord, may we have a love for you. May we have a love for our brothers, Lord. You tell us that if, if we say we love you and don't love our brother, then we're liars. And, Lord, so we, we express and profess not only our love for, for those who are next to us this morning... But also for other believers in our community and those who go specifically to the E-Free Church, Lord. There's many of them there who we know um, through being in relationship with them in the community. And we're grateful to stand alongside them, Lord, as they love you and worship you and um, profess also to be your servants. And so we pray for Pastor Jim as he teaches this morning, Lord, that he would teach your word, that it would come forth in truth. Lord, as they worship you, I pray, God, that um, their hearts would be filled with joy as they worship in song. And Lord, for the other pastoral staff and elders and, and, and even those who are sitting in the pews there, Lord, um, may your presence fill that place. And may they um, be touched um, in a way, God, that they know that you love them. And we desire that here too, Lord. We want to know. We want to we feel your love this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1. It says, Now it happened on one of those days as he taught in the temple, taught the people in the temple, and preached the gospel. So again, we see that every time Jesus was teaching or healing people, repeatedly we hear this message of the kingdom of God, the good news message, right? And it tells us that he preached the gospel. So he's really taking at this point, I believe, we don't see the exact um, connection here, but the the, the the correlation that we have in this is that he's taken these Old Testament passages, probably even talking about the Passover lambs and perhaps how, how God had sent him to be the sacrifice. We know that's the good news message, the gospel, that God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for the sins, for whosoever would believe in him. And all of sin, the Bible tells us, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And we have a debt as a result of our sin. And that debt is something that we can't pay. We don't have the ability to do so. We're bankrupt spiritually. But yet God sent his son in order to fill our bank. It says, he who knew no sin became sin." for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made a deposit into our righteousness account where there was no righteousness. He filled it up with his righteousness. And we've been now justified through our faith in Jesus Christ, saved by God's grace. That's the good news message. And this, in some form or some aspect, is what Jesus was preaching. And he could imagine he would do a way better job at it than any one of us could do. In um, preaching it, he said that he said that he was in the temple preaching the, and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes and, uh, together with the elders they at this point confronted him. Okay, and they spoke to him saying, first of all, tell us by what authority you are doing these things or who it is. Who is he who gave you this authority? And they, they were obviously referring not only to what Jesus was doing and healing and teaching, uh, but also referring back to what he had done when he had driven them out of, the, out of the temple and openly rebuked him. After all, they were the leaders, right? So by what authority are you doing this? And they were obviously going, not by our authority. So who else is giving you this permission to do these things? It says, but he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John. Of course, this is referring to John the Baptist. He says, Was it from heaven or from men? And they reason among themselves, saying, Look at how, how, how calculated they are here and just trying to protect themselves and really not concerned with the truth. They, they, they said among themselves, They reason among themselves, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Because we know that the the religious leaders had rejected John, and and John really had called them out in many ways that Jesus had called them out. And so in verse 6 it says, But if we say, here's the other part of it, if we say that he's from men, then all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. What authority John had? Where'd it come from? And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, listen guys, even though these three groups of religious leaders spoken of in verse one were only looking for a reason to condemn Jesus by their questioning, and we know that they were not genuinely seekers of the truth, the fact that they had come to Jesus and had asked this question, by whose authority had he cleansed the temple, was in part at least a good and right question for them to ask. Remember, they were the rightful authorities over the temple and over the the Hebrew people at this time. And in light of what Jesus had done and what he was doing in the temple, they had this responsibility to question him, to ask him who he had received his authority from. However, it would have been better for them to have confessed their wrongdoing, repented of the evil things that Jesus had exposed. That would have been better. Yet, because they did not have any desire to repent, we see that their questioning of his authority, just simply because they didn't have this desire to repent, they didn't come and say, You were right, we were wrong, what were we thinking? And simply because they didn't come with that heart, we automatically know that their questioning in regards to his authority was not genuine, it wasn't genuine. And, 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 um, with their questions, we know and we see here and we'll read about it in multiple times in this chapter, they were only trying to chap him, so, trap Jesus so that no matter how he answered the question, he would be in trouble, right? If he said this thing or if he said the other thing, he would be condemned in either way that he, he was to answer. In other words, if Jesus, if Jesus had answered them and said that he had no authority, I mean, think this out, if he said he had no authority before all these people that were there gathered together watching this thing, he he would be in trouble with these people, the Hebrew people, for invading their temple and acting like an an Old Testament prophet, okay? Okay. On the other hand, if Jesus had said that his authority had come from God, which it had, by the way, then he would have been in trouble with the Romans. And here's the reason why. Because the Romans would have interpreted Jesus' answer in light of what events had already taken place as some kind of attempt to overthrow the authority that they had solely entrusted to these leaders. Okay, Israel was over Roman rule, and the religious leaders were only in power because the Romans gave them permission to do so. They, they were supportive of the high priest as long as the high priest was in submission to them. And then the chief priests and the elders and, and the scribes, all these others, had their authority given to them and entrusted them because of Rome. And so if someone else came along and said, I have the authority, God's given it to me, then you could see how it could be a, a, a interpreted by the Roman government in, in, in another kind of over-tempt, uh, an attempt to overthrow what the authority that they had put in place. Yet, especially when the crowds of people were already following Jesus, right? And, and the religious leaders knew this. They knew that if Jesus was to answer in one of these ways, then they would have him. Yet when Jesus responded to their question with a question in verse 3 and referred back to the ministry of John the Baptist, we might initially think that he was trying to evade their questioning, but he wasn't. Jesus was not looking for an opportunity to evade their question. Rather, he was using his question to really explain who he is. Not just where his authority came from, but exactly who he is. To reveal himself, and in the same time, to expose the hypocrisy of these these religious leaders. They, they They had to have this pride torn down before they could even ever truly see who the Messiah was, who Jesus was. This is what was blinding them. And here's the reason why because if John was from God then he was right in proclaiming that that Jesus proclaiming he was right in proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah. Remember we go back to the beginning of the gospel accounts and John and Jesus had this meeting, right, in the Jordan River. And Jesus was baptized and John proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, right? And 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 so if this was true, if what John had had proclaimed was true, then then Jesus because of John's proclamation, if John was sent from God, then Jesus would also have been one confirmed and sent by God, and then he would have had all authority to do what he, would have, what he had done, and more. But these religious leaders had already rejected the authority of John. They'd already rejected John's authority. And, and, and John's ministry. So why should they now ask about the authority of Jesus's ministry? Because they knew if John had laid hands on Jesus, right, and they had already rejected John, then they would have rejected anyone who was of John in that kind of a sense. For, for if they had accepted John, on the other side of it, if they had accepted John, then they would have had to also accept Jesus, whose authority was John's. And so it was this connecting point there. The lines were being drawn. And, and the fact that John had testified of Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who had been sent to God, should have been enough information for them. So so why, so why, if that would have been enough information for them, so why then answer their question? They already knew. Jesus knew. And, and so why answer their question now when they had previously refused to accept and submit to the message and testimony of That John had come and had been sent with but even though they had rejected John's testimony and did not believe the message that he had preached it was clear that they were not going to publicly answer Jesus's question at this time because to do so would put them as we read here in this real difficult situation to the point where they even believed that they might be stoned. And according to verse 5, we're told that if they had, they had said that John had not received his authority from, from God, then the people would have rebelled against them since they believed that John was a prophet of God. So their plan to trap Jesus with this question, it backfired. And these religious leaders were the ones who were now caught in a dilemma. So they planned. They planned and made this plan to play dumb and, and, and then try to escape and said, we don't know. Good question. We don't know. We don't know where John's authority had come from. But in doing so, they even more so revealed themselves to not be seekers of the truth. They didn't care about the truth. They didn't care who, where John, who John was or where he came from. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that they knew that Jesus. the answer to Jesus' question, they knew. And they were rejecting what they, knew to, what, they, what they knew to be true. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. When you're more concerned about your own agenda and our own motives and ignore the truth that's been revealed to us, especially in regard to spiritual truths, just so we can go forward in our own ways is something to be very careful of. And so they had rejected John, they rejected his authority, and now they're rejecting Jesus who was sent from God and they were now even plotting to kill him and to illustrate these things okay to illustrate these things and to illustrate the fact that Jesus knew these things he went on to speak this parable in the remaining verses that we read about about the owner of a vineyard and these evil tenants who had been put in charge of this vineyard and so in verse 9 it goes and then he began to tell the people this parable and so he's addressing the crowds and he's really he's really revealing once again the 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 the, the um the attitude, the 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 heart behind um, what was going on with their religious leaders and making these comparisons to them. It says then he began to tell the people this parable. So a certain man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers, and he went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dresser that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and also cast him out. Then the owner of that vineyard said, What shall I do? What shall I do? He said, I will send my beloved son probably they will respect him when they see him, right? The heir. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, What will the owner of that vineyard do to them? And, you know, the logical conclusion is what Jesus says here. But listen to the Pharisees and the religious readers' response. And Jesus said this. He said, he answered the question. He said, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, okay, the leaders, they said, certainly not. Now, that's an illogical response, right? That's not what he'll do. Certainly not. And, 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 and there's a reason why they answered this way. And when we go on, we see that. And it says, Then he looked at them and said this. What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to power. And then verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew they knew He had spoken this parable against Him. And that's why they said, certainly not. That's not going to happen to us. And the thing to note about this parable as we look at it is that the religious leaders, they fully understood that Jesus had spoken it against them. And not just to them, but against them to the people. And they better than anyone else in the crowd, being the religious leaders, they knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And in doing so, they know that God in the Scriptures had often compared Israel to a vineyard it was no there was no misunderstandings here in regards to who Israel was who the vineyard was so they understood that when Jesus spoke about the vineyard in the parable that he was also referring to the nation of Israel Furthermore, they understood that Jesus was comparing them to the evil tenants who had, entrusted, who had been entrusted with the vineyard. Although, right, they were the ones that were the religious leaders. They were entrusted with the welfare and the spiritual care of the, of the, of the nation of Israel, the vineyard. And, and they knew that Jesus, as he had compared them to these evil tenants who had been entrusted to the vineyard, that he was comparing them to those who had beaten the servants and sent the servants that were sent by the owner. And historically, when you study the Old Testament, we know this is what the leaders of Israel had done to all the prophets of God, including John, who had been sent to them. But in this parable, Jesus brought it into the present by making mention of the vineyard vineyard owner's son. He wasn't just making a, a historical documentation in comparison. He was bringing it into the present and saying, not only is this what you've done, but look at what you're doing now. He brought it into the present. And in doing so, he revealed that he knew their intentions were to kill him by pointing out in verse 14 that when the son was sent, my beloved son, as it was spoken here, was sent that these evil tenants then took premeditated action, okay, and cast the son out of the vineyard and killed him. And this, according to verse 16, is what caused the owner of the vineyard, who had been patient and long-suffering up to this point, right, to come and destroy these tenants and to give the vineyard to others. So, understanding all this, but still not believing in Jesus, right, they completely understood, they knew what he's saying, but yet refusing to believe in Jesus as the beloved son sent by God, they foolishly and irrationally responded to all of this saying at the end of verse 16, certainly not, when asked if this is what the owner should have done. And you know what? Yeah, any one of us go, yeah, this is what the owner should have done. As a matter of fact, he probably should have done it when the first servant came back beaten. And they wrongly declared this because they knew that Jesus was, was implicating them of doing this very same thing. He was accusing them and, and passing judgment on them for doing this very same thing at that moment with him, and yet they refused to come into an agreement with him. Guys, that's so important for us to look at in regards to our own lives because you know true humility is really coming into an agreement with God. And that's what we see here in regards to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the elders, is they were unwilling to acknowledge what, they, what the truth was and, 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 and humility come into agreement with God. You know we only live in this place of, of condemnation and judgment when we are against God. and when God speaks something against us, it's not to condemn us as the Bible teaches us, but it's to set us free. And in our own lives, when God reveals something into us, we shouldn't be like, certainly not. Or he sends a friend to speak a truth into our lives. We need to be willing to examine it, to receive it, and go, is this true? And and nine times out of ten, we already know it's true about ourselves. We're just offended. These guys were offended. How dare you say that about us? Don't you know who I am? And yet what God is only calling us to do is, to, is to, to come into this place of agreement with him about who we are, what's going on in our life, and what our need is, so that he can set us free. That's what his desire was here. But yet, because these people, these religious leaders refused, they remained in this place of condemnation rather than play, coming into this place of where God could save them. And, and because of that, to drive home this last nail of spiritual understanding, Jesus then, according to verse 17, looked directly at them. Okay? So he's speaking to the people. And, and when we hear these little things that are in here, there's importance in it. You you get the picture. He's he's speaking to the general people as as he's had this initial questioning and altercation between them. He speaks the parable to the people about the Pharisees, and then he looks at the Pharisees when they responded to the religious leaders. He looked directly at them, and then he quotes Scripture from Psalm 118, verse 22. And, 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 and he's driving home this last nail of spiritual understanding when he says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, and for us, it takes a little, bit of understand, a little bit of research to understand exactly what was being spoken here. But to these guys who knew the scriptures, that knew the Old Testament prophecies, especially the prophecies regarding the Messiah and the Savior and the coming of the one who would be sent by God, they this, this was like a dagger to the heart. And from last week's study, as we do a little bit of background to get the connection here, from last week's study, we know that this very same psalm, Psalm 118, was the psalm that was traditionally sung every year at the Passover meal. And in quoting this, Jesus was referring to himself as the chief <coughs> cornerstone who was the one who was being rejected by them And because the nature of this familiar psalm, and because of the nature of this psalm, which was very familiar, these leaders knew that when Jesus was saying this, he was making the claim to be the Messiah. This was a messianic reference. They knew it. That's why they sung it at the Passover, looking for the Deliverer, the one to be sent by the Lord to save them. And the amazing thing about Jesus quoting this piece of scripture is that these verse, this verse precedes the verses that the crowds of people just two days before were, were, were using or quoting as they previously praised God and they cried out when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and you remember they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day. The day that had been appointed by God. The day that had been prophesied by Daniel two days prior to this event here. To this quote. In fact, let's put it all together. When you turn back to Psalm 118, verses 20 through 26, and we read it all together, we see the big picture, and this is what it says. And Jesus was giving them the big picture. He said, the stone, it says in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, it says. It was marvelous in their eyes. And this is the day that the Lord has made Okay, this is the day that the Lord has appointed, in other words. This is the day that the Lord had prophesied about. And you know what it says? It says, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And then the quote again in verse 26 from the people. Hosanna. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The point is, is, In this moment, with this quote from that psalm, for the religious leaders, every single piece of the prophetic puzzle had been put together before their eyes. You know, I don't like puzzles, but my family does puzzles, but I like to take one piece of the puzzle so that they get done, I can put the last one in. Isn't that rotten? (laughs) They're working on a puzzle right now, and there might be a piece missing, I don't know. But there's it's like you're like if you get have you ever done a puzzle and lost a piece? And you're like, ah, okay, so this is the whole picture. It's the last piece of the puzzle. But understand it wasn't it wasn't like Jesus was like, here, look at this. Ha 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 ha. And even after all this, we might think this in regards to the religious leaders because I'm thinking, yeah, wipe them out. Be done with these knuckleheads. But guys, really what Jesus was doing is is he is, think about this now, because the nature of God is being revealed to us. He's being patient with them. He's being patient with them and he's putting this piece of puzzle in for them and connecting all the dots because he loves them. In love, before the religious leaders, spiritual eyes, he's putting it all together and, and, and revealing it to them so that they might know and understand God's master plan. Okay guys, you guys should know is what he's saying. You're the leaders. I want you to know me. I want you to know God's will, God's plan. It's taking place. And he says, Look, look at God's master plan. And through all of this, Jesus did answer the religious leaders' question Do you see that? Whose authority do you do this? Well, he's made it very clear that I'm the Son of God, I'm the beloved one whom the Lord had sent. Whom God had sent you tell me whose authority that it's coming from. And that's true. God doesn't reign over us when he sends his son and goes, he doesn't go, he, when we, even when we call, he, he woos us into submission. We, we, we come under his authority. We enter into relationship with him. It's not like this dictator dictatorial relationship where God says, I'm God and you're not and you're gonna do what I'm saying. Is he calls us to this place and opens our eyes, it opens our heart where we go, you are God. You have all authority. You're the creator. You're the savior, the lover of my soul. And in, in with the opening of the, our eyes into that, it's not a forcing of, of his authority upon us. It's a calling us into it so we come under it willfully, wantingly. And that's what was going on here. It wasn't like Jesus was, well, you get, my authority's from God because I'm the son and you're gonna do what I say and you're gonna like it. It was in love, painting the picture, opening their eyes so that they too would be called to this place where they would enter in submission through humility. And through all of this, Jesus did answer the religious leaders' questions and he gave them understanding, this understanding that he had the authority to do these things because he's the vine dresser's beloved son and that they, the religious leaders and the spiritual representatives of the nation, he was also making it clear that they were rejecting him. They had all the information They had all the knowledge, they had all the understanding, and yet they still rejected him. And that's true for us. The Bible tells us that when you get to heaven and, and, and judgment is passed, people don't go to hell because they're like, I didn't know. It's an issue of authority, it's an issue of authority. And like this parable points out, they were doing this because they selfishly wanted to keep what had been trusted to them for themselves. They, wanted to, they were hanging on to their life. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. In other words, they wanted things their way, not God's way. Sound familiar? Isn't that how we can be? They wanted things their way and not God's way, so they refused to submit to God's plan for their lives and, and for God's plan and, and, and for God's, submit to God's plan for their nation. But the, very, but the very thing that they were trying to hang on to, and that's usually how it is in our lives, God. When, when we are in that place, the Bible says a man who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. You know, when we try to hang on, even as the children of God to these things, you know, it's like, oh, this is so much better, God. I want this. I want it my way we're going to end up missing out on the very great thing that God has for us that that because we're we can't take hold of it because we're hanging on and for, so it was true for them the very thing that they were trying to hang on to would be taken from them and given to others and that's why they said certainly not and now we now we know that these other things spoken of in verse 16 that Jesus was referring to the other things whom it would be given to is us it's going to be taken away to you from you, and it's going to be given to others. It's us, the Gentiles, the ones who have been grafted in as the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 11. Go and read it. And we, the Bible says, this is a cool thing, the Bible says we become co-heirs of the blessings and the promises of God as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Think about that. All the promises of God that was given to the Hebrew people, to the nation of Israel, to the the descendants of Abraham, the sons of Abraham, has been given to us. It's been given to others for a time so that we might receive the blessings and the promises of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Co-heirs in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, it tells us about this saying this. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither saved nor free. There is neither male nor female. There's no longer these distinctions, the separation that goes on in regards to our relationship with God and the salvation that he has for us and the promises and all these things. He says, why? Because for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's awesome. That's awesome. But before I move on, I want to point out that in this parable, Jesus also revealed another important thing for us. Specifically, I see it here as the incredible patience and long-suffering nature of God. And, and, and because I know what I'm like, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. Sometimes I get irritated with God when He when I see other people doing things that I've done as well, and going, "Get him, God! What are you doing?" And then I have to stop and look at myself, and I'm like, "Why are you so patient with them?" <laughs> you know, it's 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 human nature to 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 be like that. But I love the fact that God's patient and He's long suffering. I look at these religious leaders and the impatience and the long suffering nature of it of God with them, and I'm just blown away. Uh, Yet, I want that for my own life, and God gives that to us. He does. And we see that in here. Specifically, we see it when we consider that the owner of the vineyard, who is God, right, was rejected and disrespected four different times before he came to take away, had been trusted to the vine dresser. That blows my mind. In fact, even after three of his servants had been beaten and sent back empty-handed, we see that the vine dresser still sent his beloved son. And when you read this parable, you, could go, you might go, is this vine dresser not get it? You know? And God gets it, guys. God, God's not, not not slack concerning judgment. He gets it. Okay? He's not slack, but he is patient. He's long-suffering, and we see that. And 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 he still sent his son. Why? Because he desired and hoped that they would receive him. He desired and hoped that they would receive him. And this only further illustrates what we're told about God in chapter two of or second Peter chapter two there, verses chapter three verses nine. You know what? I'm gonna just gonna say it. Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm gonna say it. We we need to be offended when someone says, God's unloving. You know, how many times do you get to hear that in one way or another in our world today? That is not our God. And we should be offended to the point of righteous anger, not that we lash out at them, but where we go, you know, let me tell you about my God. Because the God that that you're speaking about is not the God of the Bible, number one, and it's not the God who has given his life for me and for you. Let me tell you about this God. And in our society today, in the world today, those who are on the outside, they have this perverted view of who God is, and it's because of the lies that are in their hearts and the lies of the enemy that wants people to think that God hates them. That's not our God. That's not my God. And matter of fact, it says in 1, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses, verses uh, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Right? He's not slack concerning his promises. And speaking about this promise to judge, to come, as some count slackness. Oh, yeah, some like, oh, yeah, the Lord's really God's really coming. He's going to judge, whatever. And a lot of people in the world today, you know, they, they believe God to be like that, but they don't believe that they're going to be the ones to be judged, right? Okay, the Lord's not slack. God's not slack concerning that. But the reason why it hasn't happened is because he's long something towards us. He says, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. In the book of Ezekiel, it says that God's judgment is his strange work. I love that. It's, so, it's, such, it's such a rarity. It, it, it comes at, at such a far point than what we would ever think is, is deemed as right or as good or as needful that, that it seems strange to the children of God when God does judge. And through the book of Revelation, it talks about when the, the judgment of God comes, and, it, and it's actually referred to like overripe fruit. You know, we pick fruit off the tree when it's ripe, and if you don't do it in time, the birds are going to get it and that kind of a thing. Or if you wait too long, it's going to rot and fall off, right? And, and that's that says when the judgment of God comes, it's going to look to us like it's overripe. And man, it looks like that, does it not? It's like, it looks like the world's overripe for God's judgment. But it's because God's long-suffering. And in the, the most amazing thing about this parable, to me, is just how long-suffering and patient God is, as described by the, 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 the events that go take place in this chapter. Anyway, as we look at verses 20 and 26, come on, even though these religious leaders had lost this battle, it was clear that they did not consider themselves defeated. And in verses 20 through 26, as, as we read on, it says this, so they watched him and sent spies to pretend to be righteous, okay? That they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power of the authority and the governors. Okay, so the religious leader, or to the Roman government is really what that's saying. And so they asked him, saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and do not show personal favoritism, but teach in the way of of God in truth. Teach the way of God in truth. So this is this pretending to be righteous. Oh yeah, we, we think you're right and good. and not, but, but, verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You can tell us we're your friends. <laughs> right? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image, is, whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words and in the presence of the people, or they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his his answer and kept silent, astonished. So this time the question was, the question, or more specifically, as we keep it in the context of what we know to be true, this examination, right, ordained by God, came from spies who had been sent in by the scribes and the chief priests. And in Mark's gospel account, when you do a comparative study through the other gospels, we're told who these spies were. They were a group of people called the Herodians, okay? And the Herodians were a sect of, a sect of Jews, a sect of Jews that worked in cooperation with the Roman government. So you can see the conspiracy going on here, right? They worked with the Roman government even though they were Jews. So even though they had a different political view than the scribes and the chief priests who had sent them in, they had made this this decision to work together in order to catch Jesus in his words and to condemn him. The craftiness of it. However, they wrongly thought that, they, again, could trap Jesus with a question and that had this question had not only a religious implication to it also, but a political implication as well. So political and religious implications with this question. Yet Jesus, according to verse 23, perceived their craftiness. So he answered in a way that not only avoided the dilemma, but also, listen, it also emphasized their responsibility to Rome and more importantly, their greater responsibility to God. And in doing so, Jesus had asked them to bring him a denarius, which was a silver coin of Roman currency, and Jesus did so for a couple of reasons. Why would he do that? So he asked for this, this, this visual illustration for them, and, and he did so because they were using Roman currency at the time, right? So first, since they were using Roman currency at the time, which had Caesar's image on it, these people, okay, show me show me. Uh, a denarius. Well, Herodian just happened to have one. Oh. Okay. So he pulls it out of his pocket and 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 in doing so, it was an admission by them having Roman currency with a, with a, the the, with the image of Caesar on it as Jesus was calling them out. It was an admission of Caesar's authority over them an acknowledgment of the benefit of the Roman government and the consequently their obligation to pay their taxes, to pay the taxes. So, when they paid taxes, they were not only giving back to Caesar what he had first made available. They were, so when they were, excuse me, when they paid their taxes, they were only giving back to Caesar what had first been made available to them. That's the idea behind what Jesus is saying here. And this is why Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's his, right? But on the other hand, the more important reason for why Jesus had asked for this coin with Caesar's image on it was due to the fact that he knew that those who had asked this question, he knew that those who had asked this question also knew that God's image, okay, more importantly, that God's image is Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, Genesis chapter 5 verse 2, And Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 points out, they knew that God's image has been stamped upon each and every human being. Okay? So when Jesus told these men in verse 25 to render therefore the things to Caesar that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, he was pointing out the religious leaders' hypocrisy here. In that they had placed such a great importance upon earthly power and earthly authority, while at the same time completely forsaking God's divine power and authority over their lives. Okay? In other words, they bore the image of God. Which is an image or an evidence, which which that image is an evidence of ownership, is what Jesus was saying. Give me the Roman coin whose image is on it. Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But more importantly, you. Whose image have you been stamped with? You've been stamped with the image of God. Therefore, give to God what is God's. You see the connection there? And he was calling them to acknowledge this, this this power and authority of their lives. As they bore the image, which is an evidence of, of ownership, yet what we see in this, as Jesus pointed this out and called them to give to God what is God's, it was again say a, 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 an accusation of them not submitting their lives to God. And the cool thing is, here for us is that we too, we all have been, the Bible says, created in the image of God, in His likeness. We bear His image. And because we are His then we can consider what Jesus says here and see that the natural conclusion for that understanding, for, the, for that truth, is that we must then submit ourselves to him, to his authority, to give to God what is his. Because by doing so, we as citizens of a heavenly kingdom are literally declaring then our allegiance to God. To God. Give to God what is God's. And if we're his, we're giving ourselves to him and we give ourselves to him. It's a declaration of our author, of his authority and our allegiance to him, to his kingdom. And so as we close out in verse 27, it says, Then some of the Sadducees, looking at this last group of people, these Sadducees who, who deny it says that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a, man, if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he does not, he dies without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in a like manner, the seven also, and they died and left no children, and and died. And last of all the woman died also therefore in the resurrection whose wife does she become for all seven had her as wife and i think the real question is is what was this lady feeding these guys so then in verse 34 jesus answered and said to them the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are counted worthy to attain that age, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of resurrection, of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, okay, how? When he called out to the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he Speaking of God, is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered him and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. And after that, they declared they, or they dared not question him anymore. And we'll, we'll end with those verses. So the, the Sadducees, they were a group of religious leaders who we are told here, uh, and they were a specific sect that, that um, didn't believe in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, they were so so rigid in, in their belief system that they only adhered to the authority of the Scriptures in regards to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the ones that were written by Moses. And in from, from Acts chapter 23, verse 8, it tells us that they did not believe in the afterlife with the resurrection of the body or in the existence of angels. So when they came to Jesus to question him, they formed then therefore this hypothetical question, Based upon the laws that were found in the book of Deuteronomy, okay, chapter twenty-five, verses seven through ten, where really quickly it just outlines the responsibility of a surviving brother to take the wife of his brother who had who had died as his own, own wife if she did not yet have children, and the reason for that had to do with the land and the and the continuation of of the inheritance being handed down through a family and in the and the, the 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 keeping of it so. But again, like like those who had already come and questioned Jesus, they had devised this unlikely, very unlikely, right, hypothetical question for the purpose of trying to catch Jesus in his words. But this is not what happened. In fact. Jesus immediately pointed out the ignorance of the Sadducees and pointed out the fallacy of the argument by rhetorically asking them a question and pointed out to their own folly how they they lacked the knowledge of the Scriptures and knowledge of the power of God. Them of all people, right, should know not only the Word of God, but the power of God. And one of the cool things about this this chapter, okay, I want to kind of connect all the dots as we close. One of the cool things about this chapter and particularly as seen by this very passage of Scripture that we're reading here now, is that Jesus answered all of these questions that were given to him in some form or some fashion by always making reference to the Word of God. That's how he combated their, their, their questioning. He, that's where he made his argument from. And in doing so, Jesus ultimately was, was, was passing the Old Testament test to determine if a person was from God or was not from God. You see, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, it says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so Jesus, as being examined and inspected and finding no fault in him, always referred back to the word of God in fulfillment of this law, this passage in Isaiah, to show where he was coming from and who he was. And the same principle needs to be followed by us today. And if any person is claiming to have been sent from God, which Jesus was claiming to be the one sent from God, right, and there are people today who will, who will, will claim to have been sent from God or is claiming to have a word from God, you know, you know what, they must, the, the things that they speak must line up with God's word or it must have been taken from God's word. And, and, and if, what they, if what they are saying doesn't line up with, with what God's Word says or is not from God's Word, then you know what? They should not be received. They should not be received as men or women of God. But because Jesus was doing this was another evidence that he was a man sent from God, more than a man, the only begotten Son. You know, and I'm here to tell you, I bring this up not only to point that out, but guys, this standard is not being adhered to by many professing Christians today in regards to the standard of checking people out. And consequently, there are many in the church today who are being led astray by men and women who have no light in them. God's Word's not being taught. And um. As Jesus answered the Sadducees, he referred them to Exodus chapter 3. Debbie, if you want to come up in the worship team, we're going to close this. They, he, he, he referred to Exodus chapter 3, verse 12 verses, where God is revealing himself to Moses. We know that that burning bush passage of Scripture, right? Where Moses sees the burning bush in the wilderness, and, and in that passage, God told Moses, and when he's, he's all, who are you? you? know, And God told Moses, he said, I am the God of of Moses' fathers, okay? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he referred to these men, God referred to these men in that passage of Scripture in the present tense. I am, not I was the God, right? I am the God. And, and in doing so, the implication is, is that they were still alive, even though they were not on the earth. Moses' fathers, I am their God. And so this, this it's this testimony to the resurrection. And with this illustration, Jesus, or with this with this, this reference to the Old Testament passage and the words of God there, whom to the Sadducees even believed in, Jesus was illustrating the fact that there is life after death. Someone told me not too many years ago that the Hebrew people didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in eternal life. Well, you go to go to the passages of scripture like this, and it's clear that they do. It's clear that it was being taught. And and, and and with this illustration, Jesus Jesus brought forth that there is life after death and hope for us with a future resurrection. But the resurrection is not... Listen, there's many people who think many funny things about the resurrection. Guys, the resurrection is not a reconstruction. God doesn't take these broken up bodies and like patch them and, and you know... Have you guys ever done construction and done remodeling? You don't get remodeled. <laughs> it's not a reconstruction... Uh, and it's not a continuation of life, life as, as it is now. The truth is, there's a lot that we don't know about the life that is to come. But we do know, as it says here, is that even though we'll be like the angels and that will be eternal, we're not going to be like them. We won't become them. It says, we will be like Christ. How about that? We're going to be like Christ. And the point is, is is, is the life to come, guys, is a whole new kind of life. That's what it is. It's a whole new kind of life, a life that is much better than the life that we have here. Why? Mainly because it'll be a place where there is no more sin. That's a good thing. It'll be a place, because there's no more sin, where there's no more suffering and there's no more death. But more importantly, it'll be a place where there is joy forevermore, because it is a place where we will live forevermore in the presence of our Heavenly Father who loves us. you guys stand? We'll pray and close. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together, Lord, where we can learn about you and learn your will for our lives. I pray, God, as you've spoken truth to us this morning and maybe even opened up our understanding to a bigger picture of maybe your will for our lives or your love for us, I pray, God, that we wouldn't reject any of those things because we, we want it our way. Lord, may we see, um, as you were revealing to, to these religious leaders, that we've been stamped with your very image. It's a sign of ownership. And God, um, just because we don't acknowledge that doesn't make it untrue. But Lord, let us acknowledge it so that we may walk in obedience to you. May we, that we may give back to you what is rightfully yours, our lives, our love, our affection. And God, um, you tell us and you promise us that there's blessings. Not only eternal blessings, but blessings in this life. And so Lord, I pray for anyone who's struggling with that this morning, whether it's a specific area of their life or their heart in general, Lord, and bringing it into submission to you. Lord, may they see that you're a good God who loves them. That's not going to just force yourself upon them, but you're calling them to recognize who you are and the rightful authority that you have over their lives but you're inviting them, Lord, to come into relationship with you. I pray, God, that we would walk daily in that place. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, there will be people up here again who can pray with you and for you if you wish to be prayed for after this last song of worship. Let's worship.